Hello, and welcome to the Talking Michigan Transportation Podcast. I'm Jeff Cranson. This week, in recognition of Black History Month, I'm putting a spotlight again on an exciting project in the city of Detroit, which involves transforming the I-375 Spur Freeway into an at-grade urban boulevard and acknowledging actions of leaders many decades ago to displace black residents and businesses in the name of urban renewal. For a detailed account of that history, I'm speaking first with Bill McGraw, a retired Detroit Free Press reporter and editor who has written extensively about the history of those neighborhoods and what went on in various city administrations going back to the 1940s. Later this week, you'll hear from Michigan Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist, who has strong family connections to those neighborhoods, and he'll talk about what this project means to him. He will also talk about a major economic development this week that he participated in with Governor Whitmer as Ford Motor Company unveiled plans for a $3.5 billion electric vehicle plant in Marshall, Michigan. But first, some history of the Black Bottom neighborhood. Okay, once again, I'm with Bill McGraw, who is a retired reporter at the Detroit Free Press and I think has written some of the most comprehensive stories about the history of the neighborhoods where 375 was built. And really his reporting laid out that what was going on with urban renewal uh, and the you know removal of residents and building of, of new neighborhoods long predated the freeway. Um, the freeway was certainly a byproduct of that later. But Bill, thanks for being here. First of all, I appreciate that. Thank you. So first talk about your biggest takeaway or takeaways from your reporting on the history and demise of Black Bottom and rise of Lafayette Park. Uh, Well, uh, the one thing that uh, really struck me is that, uh, A, it was pretty brutal. Um, They, uh, you know, moved uh, uh, almost 8,000 people out of Black Bottom who were not compensated at all because they were renters. The people who owned the buildings, of course, who were mainly white Detroiters and others, um, were compensated. And um, the federal government, which provided a lot of the money, mandated that they give the people who were being moved relocation help, both money and literal help. But that never happened, or it happened very sporadically, and it didn't help most of the people. And later on, the people who were involved in the so-called relocation efforts uh, admitted that. Uh, and they really did. It's interesting to look back, you know, 70 years ago. Um, at the time in 1950, Black Detroit was really coming into its own. Uh, the migration from uh, much of the rest of the world into Detroit had slowed down, but it was still going pretty strong from southern U.S. So there was still a lot of Black Americans moving into Detroit. And at the moment this is happening, when the population is really becoming significant, the city stepped in and really just sort of like, um, you know, dropped the bomb in the middle of their community. So when you talk about that, the the, the great migration, which obviously brought blacks to another a, a number of northern industrial cities, but probably none more so than Detroit because of what was going on in the auto industry and other manufacturing industries at the time, right? Exactly. And, uh, you know, it went on from the World War One era to uh, really the uh, Great Migration extended really until about 1970 when laws were passed in the South that finally started changing the South and started making life a little more acceptable for um, African-Americans. 
So, um, yeah, that was exactly what fueled Detroit, um, you know, um, population. And in 1950, the population itself overall was peaking, even though whites were beginning to move out of Detroit into the suburbs, there was still enough uh, uh, African-Americans moving in that this, the population was, uh, well, it basically got to about 2 million by 53 or 54. So when you talked about the housing, and we're going back really to the 40s, I mean, again, just to make this clear, this is long before there was any talk of I-375 or a, or a new spur freeway. You're talking back to administrations of like Mayor Edward Jeffries and, and continuing with Albert Cobo and his continuation of what was called the Detroit Plan, right? Right. And uh, the Detroit Plan did have freeways as a big proponent of that, uh, a big part of that. But it was basically what's really amazing is so apart from the kind of brutality that went into this plan that was a result of this plan, the plan itself was really huge. And Detroit was really thinking big back in the literally in the middle of World War II, before it was clear that the Allies were going to win World War II, Detroit was planning for the post-war period. And there really had been very little sort of um, uh, urban renewal or civic uh, improvement that's gone on in Detroit for many years. And so they had a plan that covered everything from a new medical center, the civic center downtown, expanding the cultural center, expanding Wayne State, new libraries, new police precincts and fire stations. And of course, the, one of the major proponents or uh, parts of this were, was a freeway system for Detroit. So they were talking about freeways back as early as 1945-46. This is something that the mayors and the business leaders wanted. They saw that as an integral part of that planning. Exactly. They thought it was huge because imagine Detroit with Two million people in it and no freeways. I mean, just think of that. Today, um, there is only what uh, seven hundred thousand barely people left in Detroit. But think of two million people with no freeways, and the whole city is still filled with a lot of factories and everything. Um, traffic was a problem. You, if you went from one end of the city to the other, it was going to take you a long time. So commuting was difficult, and moving goods around Detroit was difficult too. So they saw, like a lot of other cities did that freeways were the answer, they thought, to the problem. And um, even before the federal government was was uh, on record as going to fund all this stuff, Detroit was moving ahead with its own um, you know, freeway plan. And the first freeway was the Lodge Freeway, and the second one was what we now call the Ford Freeway so on When you look in the rearview mirror, there's a lot of people in the 50s, as the interstate plan came to be, um, that will tell you that that President Eisenhower and the person who carried much of the water for the interstate system in the U.S. Senate, Senator Al Gore Sr., did not know some of the unintended consequences of these interstates would be white flight and the ability to live farther away from the, the core city. Exactly, exactly. And of course, like everywhere in America, but especially in Detroit, the suburban, uh, the rush to suburbia was, uh, you know, starting to pick up steam in the early 50s. You know, Northland opened in 54. The GM Tech Center in Warren opened in, uh, what, 56, I believe. So suburbia around Detroit was really starting to become something in that era, right as the freeways were being built. I mean, the the move to suburbia started before the freeways, really, but the freeways really fueled it. Expedited it, yeah. So was, was there discussion in the, I mean, 
it's always hard to judge people uh, given what they know in a time, right? We know much more, you know, when we look back. But was there any discussion in the earliest days about equity for the people being displaced? Was that just not a consideration? It doesn't appear that I've never seen any discussion. In fact, there's some very, um, you know, just like uh, with the distance between now and 1950, it's easy to say, you know, Kobo was a racist, and that's why his name was taken off of Kobo Hall. That's why we don't call Kobo Hall Kobo Hall anymore. He definitely showed a lot of antipathy to the black community uh, in a lot of different things he did besides building a freeway through the, um, or at least planning a freeway through the um, black neighborhood, the major black neighborhood in Detroit. He really was a um, ally of the white homeowner groups in the early 50s that were agitating, sometimes through normal political means, sometimes through violence, to keep black people out of neighborhoods. And and, and Kobo was their ally. So for a lot of different reasons, uh, um, Kobo was perceived as the enemy of the black community, and there's a lot of evidence, there's there's undeniable evidence that he was. And I, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, well, I, I think you, you wrote so eloquently and and I've seen other stories and, and photos of the time, historical photos. But I want to read one passage from one of your stories about what life was like in the broader neighborhood. You wrote, the entire Black East Side was a city within a city of clubs, restaurants, hospitals, funeral homes, drugstores, and service firms, many run by African-Americans, though there were still merchants remaining from when the neighborhood was largely Jewish. Hastings Street was the main artery of Black Bottom, a 24-hour thoroughfare lined by two- and three-story buildings and a mix of stores, restaurants, churches, and bars. One of many notable establishments, I love this part, was Sonny Wilson's Sprawling Forest Club at Forest and Hastings. It featured a 107-foot bar, bowling alley, banquet hall, and a two-story roller skating rink. Beginners went upstairs. (laughs) Right, right. Well, when you see pictures of Hastings Street, so Hastings, of course, ran from the river up to and above uh, East Grand Boulevard. So it was a long street. And um, when you look at it with those two and three story buildings and the street was only as wide for about three cars, barely. It was like the kind of streets you see today in Chicago and Toronto that Detroiters go to and say, wow, I wish we had a street like this because it's filled with stores and people and activity and vitality. And that's the kind of street Hastings was. Now, Hastings was also, um, you know, again, the neighborhood around Hastings was not a prosperous neighborhood uh, in large part. It was a, a working poor and a kind of a poor neighborhood. So Hastings had a lot of, uh, you know, a shady type of activity going on, too, from prostitution to gambling. So it was a big city street and it was a very interesting street from all accounts. But in terms of the commercial uses, the way you described the vitality, it was like, I mean, setting aside the seedy parts you just mentioned, it was a modern urban planner's dream. Exactly. It's the exact kind of street that urban planners that like Warren, 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 Michigan has for years been trying to figure out how to create a downtown. And they, I don't think they've succeeded yet, despite their best efforts, but they would love to have a street like Hastings Street. Well, Detroit itself would love to have a street like Hastings Street. It's narrow and it's intense. And um, it would be attracting a lot of people today. It would be almost, think of Greektown, uh, that's like four or five miles long is what Houston Street was like, really. So. so when things kind of stalled later with this Detroit plan and the housing development, Walter Ruther stepped in and played a significant role. Can you talk about that? Right. Let's back up for a second, though, and separate the, the freeway from the housing plan, you know. Okay. Uh, so, 
So back now, World War II is over. And in 1946, the mayor then, Jeffries, who's the namesake, of course, of the Jeffries Freeway, um, he uh, decides that, um, and, and his successors decide that they've got to do something with the east side of downtown, this neighborhood, Black Bottom, and what we also call Paradise Valley. Um, it's, it's too uh, shabby to attract the kind of um, development we want downtown, especially because we're putting all this money into developing downtown, our new civic center with Kobo and Ford Auditorium and Veterans Memorial and all this stuff. They come up with uh, part of the Detroit plan, as you mentioned, and that was to level Black Bottom and to create housing. And so the kind of housing that they were going to put on it became a big discussion point and very contentious for many years. Should they have? Should they make allowances for the people who are being moved out of it? Well, people said, if we want to attract middle class and upper middle class people, they're not going to want to live with poor black people. That was literally the argument. And so that went on for a while. Finally, they decided they were going to make what became Lafayette Park. But it took many years and uh, many false starts. The city couldn't find a developer who thought the concept made sense financially. And then they had trouble finding the right architect. But you're right. The the linchpin of this came after several years of delay. And now remember, they tore down all the buildings. So the buildings were torn down as early as 1950-51. And the project didn't really get going until like 54-55. So for a few years, this huge area down there was like this barren, muddy, you know, it had a few trees, but virtually all the buildings were gone, and um, and, and it intensified. Where did the people go? A lot of people moved to the 12th Street area, which was an area where black people had moved and were were able to move, which was not true for a lot of the city, and that increased the density and sort of the um, the uh, problems of the 12th Street area, where of course the rebellion happened in 1967. Not that much longer. So all that stuff's going on, and Walter Ruther did um, took time out from uh, building the UAW and arguing with GM and Ford to come up with a plan that allowed them to get Lafayette, what became known as Lafayette Park, up and running. So with respect to Joni Mitchell, they really did pave over Paradise Valley? <laughs> they did pave over Paradise Valley, but they put up more than a parking lot. Now, see, that's another thing. This is a kind of a multi-layered story. What they did build in Lafayette Park was fabulous. You know, again, separating what they built from how they built it and what they did to the people there. Right. But what what they built, that is still a neighborhood that is desirable, that is, um, you know, it's integrated now. It really wasn't well integrated when it first started. It was mainly white. So they moved, you know, that area had been about 98% African-American. And 10 years later, it was about 95% white. So they really did have a trans a racial transition. But today it's a very uh, sought after neighborhood. It's beautiful with the trees that weren't there. It was kind of austere looking at first, but with all the vegetation and everything. Uh, and of course the architecture and their second round of finding architects, they were able to come up with Mies van der Rohe, who is one of the you know legendary architects of the uh, second half of the 20th century. And uh, he's the one who designed those sort of what he calls skin and bones buildings. Um, it's not my cup of tea as far as architecture goes, but I know it's very popular, that modernist look with glass and metal, steel. And um, 
you know, uh, they had three or four different kinds of um, arrangements for the layouts of the apartments or the condos. And then they had, uh, what, three high rises. So, um, and uh, so, you know, right away, they put Detroit on the map as far as modernist architecture in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And there's still uh, housing and, and condos being developed there, right, uh, right in that area, off of what will will soon be a boulevard and not a freeway. And I say soon, I mean in a few years. But right, yeah. right. And that connectivity, I mean, let's talk about that a little bit. And I know you've you've followed the progress uh, as as MDOT and city officials and state officials and even Secretary Pete Buttigieg from USDOT was there to talk about converting I-375 into an urban boulevard and creating, I mean, making Lafayette Park even more desirable, I would think, because then you can walk to, you know, Greektown and other places in the city, you know, other other commercial neighborhoods. So Without crossing a big, wide, noisy freeway. Yeah, a ditch freeway, right. yeah. So I, I wonder what you think about this because, you know, I've spent a lot of time talking to people about this and trying to make it clear that nobody is saying that anything you do now can make up for the sins of the past and it really doesn't matter, you know, who's to blame or what's to blame. Um, this this at least is is recognition and at least trying to set set things in a better course for the future. Yeah, you know, I haven't covered any of what's been going on. I'm sort of semi-retired now, but I have followed it as a reader. And, um, you know, I know they're trying to involve Black Detroiters in the planning process, and I don't know what they're trying to do as far as financial equity. That's a complicated subject. Um, but um, it, it's it's I think it's interesting that there at least is recognition on the greater sort of in white America that there was like huge injustices done uh, in planning our cities after World War II and uh, the way um, our black, uh, you know, co-citizens suffered to have this new city built. You know, uh, again, Detroit got all sorts of uh, praise nationally for what it was doing in the post-World War II era. Uh, but when we look back at it today, um, you know, the word brutality really comes up the way that uh, as far as the, the ingredient that was in there to move people out to get what they wanted for basically white people. Yeah. No, I, I think uh, your reporting, at least on the history, is, is was was really good. And I, I appreciate it. I've learned a lot from from reading what you wrote. Uh, and not just this, your your broader reporting at the Free Press as a as a veteran reporter and a, and a, and a, and a native of the city. Right. So, yes. Yes. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk about this. Uh, I think uh, it's important to recognize this history, especially during Black History Month. And um, this is a part of a this is one segment and what will be others, you know, focusing on on this and how how that part of Detroit was influenced by urban renewal. Thanks very much, Jeff. Thank you again for listening to this special Black History Month edition of Talking Michigan Transportation. A reminder that I'll be back later this week to continue the conversation about the historic transformation of I-375 and some other mobility issues with Michigan Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist. Be sure to tune in for that. I'd also like to acknowledge, again, the people who make this podcast a reality each week. Randy Doubler, who produces and does the sound engineering. Jesse Ball for his help with the show notes. Jackie Salinas for completing the transcription. And Courtney Bates for posting the podcast on various platforms. For show notes and more, go to Apple Podcasts.